Chapter 5 Salvation From Rescue to Realization Only in Restoration Scripture do we learn the backstory and the unfathomable ambition behind Jesus' words to his disciples, whom he envisioned as friends and peers. That backstory is as follows In a large assembly surrounded by fellow spirits, Our heavenly parents invited us into more intimate and equal communion with themselves. Generous to overflowing, desirous of helping us grow into beings fully capable of the abundant life, an eternal father and his divine companion undertook to parent us to the point that we can share in their condition. Because of God's spiritual thirst, as Julian the God-touched mystic perceived, God longeth to bring us to the fullness of joy. The parenting process, boiled down to its purest, simplest essence, was for our heavenly parents to school us in the kind of love that filled and motivated themselves. Absolute love. At the end of this process, Cheka Okazaki wrote, our heavenly parents will have sons and daughters who are their peers, their friends, and their colleagues. We understand in a way that is radically distinct from Christian conceptions that salvation is the flowering of a divine potential, not the correction of an innate fault. The path by which we come to experience heaven will be shaped accordingly. What the previous discussion places at the centre of any conception of salvation is the quickening power of authentic relationships we might venture a definition of salvation. To be saved is to become the kind of persons in the kinds of relationships that constitute the divine nature. The becoming is the key term here. This understanding of saved was taught in the school of the prophets. Let us ask, where shall we find a prototype into whose likeness we may be assimilated in order that we may be made partakers of life and salvation. Or in other words, where shall we find a saved being? For if we can find a saved being, we may ascertain without much difficulty what all others must be in order to be saved. They must be like that individual or they cannot be saved. Whatever constitutes the salvation of one will constitute the salvation of every creature which will be saved. We ask then, where is the prototype? Or where is the saved being? We conclude as to the answer of this question, it is Christ. All will agree in this, that he is the prototype or standard of salvation, or in other words, that he is a saved being. How is it that he is saved? because he is a just and holy being, and if he were anything different from what he is, he would not be saved. For his salvation depends on his being precisely what he is, and nothing else. Thus says John in his first epistle, Behold, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
Several remarkable facts follow from this definition of a saved being. To be saved does not mean to be rescued, redeemed, or otherwise restored from a position of deficit. This position of deficit is where we too often get off on the wrong foot, unconsciously buying into a framework that is the universal Christian default with which the story begins. Our story, the greatest cosmic adventure of all time, starts in heaven, with, a spro- with the prospect of salvation, which Joseph renames exaltation. Exaltation, eternal life, theosis. This is the ambitious project of godlike growth, addition, education, becoming, and transformation. This metamorphosis is the most important feature of Latter-day Saint salvation. The process is not recuperative. It is not a response to a past catastrophe. It is the realization of a future possibility. It is additive, not restorative. The explicit focus of salvation is on what one can be, not what one must say or do. The language of becoming a just and holy being, as we will see, has profound consequences on the meaning of grace. This is why we emphasize that fatal moment in the Reformation when Luther reinvented salvation as the declaring rather than the becoming righteous or holy. With Luther, salvation became something that God can give us, a gift he grants or withholds at his whim on his preconditions. As saints, many of us still relate to God on that false assumption. We live with a constant fear that we are failing to please him, to measure up, as if he is looking for reasons to deny us the winner's cup. We lose sight of the fact that God is running the race with us, not waiting at the finish line to declare us victor or loser. Neither is our universe a despotic monarchy, with God above the starry canopy and ourselves down here. It is a spiritual commonwealth, with God in the midst of us. Restoration theology is, from the first word, far more ambitious, presumptuous, and gloriously aspirational than we may recognize. Restoration theology goes far beyond the Christian hope of personal redemption from death and hell. Our faith tradition aspires to make us into the likeness of our heavenly parents. Our sin, as saints, may be in thinking that such an endeavor could be anything other than wrenching, costly, inconceivably difficult, and at times unimaginably painful. We do not become, in C.S. Lewis's phrase, little Christs by a couple of well-spent hours ministering to our assigned families and abstaining from tea and coffee. The focusing lenses of our religion, its scriptural promises, its temple rituals, its discipline of prayer, and its priesthood piercings of the veil, bring us into closer contact with the divine even if that participation in that divine nature is still a long way off. We are still very much in the morning of an eternity of striving, and our theology is commensurately ambitious 
open-ended and dauntingly generative of unexplored ramifications.